0: when we say that we're encountering spiritual beings or entering spiritual realms or whatever, when we do psychedelics, it's like, well, maybe actually other things are happening. Maybe you're popping your astral body out of the complex of all your other bodies and forcing it into a dimension where spirits live. Maybe that's not the best thing to do.
1: But one of the things I've noticed with people that do DMT a lot and they talk about it. They have no idea whether these beings are... All they know is that they're way more powerful than them, and they seem to think they're helping them. And when they tell these stories, I can't help but think sometimes that they just don't know they think they're helping them but actually right. it's it, it could be a totally different motivation that they can't really wrap their head around you know what I mean because t- it's too small within the context of these more advanced beings
0: you know like Duncan said something like oh well, we, like if you ever met the Antichrist I would have him on the podcast and I was like <laughs> Duncan if you met the Antichrist you would be obliterated in his presence <laughs> if he spoke a word to you you know like it's just not it's like we're not talking about it's something you can skint.
2: talk about you just Yeah,
0: Yeah, right, exactly.
2: Like, it's just like we're looking at the eclipse. Greetings, future fossils. I'm Michael Garfield, welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Asking the questions about what it means to be good ancestors, which means, of course, having a clear understanding of everything we have inherited. The full toolkit of cultural resources at our disposal. And so much of what we have inherited has been rejected, repressed for hundreds or thousands of years. We live in a world dominated by the materialist view, use a science that, in spite of its remarkable achievements, neglects and dismisses the direct experience of the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived. And clearly, we cannot move forward in this way clearly we need to retrieve cultural traditions and their insights that help us adequately address the complexities of a living and evolving world. The worldview that we have inherited from modernity is a world of static objects occupying a Cartesian grid of a mind-body duality. That's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. We've known its bullshit in the scientific world for over a 100 years, and still we abide by this reductionist view that an organism is reducible to its genes and that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain. This is insane! What do we do about it? How can we move forward in a way that allows us to actually and rigorously address the problems that biology and the greater world that biology informs have posed us? Well, we can start by involving the occult. That's right, boys and girls and whatever else is listening the occult and today with the delightful guests connor habib gay porn star and magical practitioner and our mutual dear friend and my record producer mitch miniano aka raven mikhail of the shamanic agenda podcast more on that later sit down with me today to talk about the occult dimensions of biology how the esoteric practices of anthroposophy and related traditions understand the living world and how to properly perceive and make sense of organisms as processes unfolding through time. We also get into, of course, because this is my show, (laughs) we get into, for the first time on this show, reincarnation and the possibility that the identity extends beyond the envelope of the skin and that each of us is actually the whole focused through these motifs of harmonically resonant incarnations. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to thank every single one of the 88 people supporting this podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Go there if you want access to a free and extensive history of the music and talks that I tour doing festivals with and some of the original science fiction and science fictional essay that I've put out there. And if these conversations are enjoyable to you, then I encourage you to go check out the rest of this stuff as well. It's all motivated by the same desire to facilitate Deep explorations. Special thanks to Charlie Harris, new Patreon supporter this week. Also, I want to thank all of you who have been rating this show on iTunes. Leaving a positive review of this show is hugely helpful to people that neither of us know who are going to discover your review and decide to listen to an inspiring conversation that changes their lives. So, on behalf of those strangers, thank you for reviewing Future Fossils. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. I'm very, very excited that I get to share this wonderful conversation with Connor Habib and Mitch Mignano. Enjoy. Let us begin, dude Connor, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know you just got back from Vietnam, and everything is crazy, so <laughs> yeah. thank you
0: I'm happy to happy to be here
2: i'm I'm here with my buddy Mitch Mignano, who has joined me for a great number of festival talks. I've been like writing him to get him to, to be on this show, and then he met Duncan Trussell at Burning Man. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they hit it off, and Duncan had no trouble convincing him that he needed a podcast. So, this is, <laughs> in, insofar as this show is a historic record, in a weird way, I feel like it's you and me, we get to sort of, like, initiate the shaman into this shit cuz i know you t- you two guys know each other and that this is essentially a like gritty prequel podcast circle jerk now
0: yeah well that i don't i don't have any pants on so makes
2: sense <laughs> that explains the audio only
0: uh, th- that wouldn't stop me no <laughs> <clears throat>
2: Dude, I try to pretend that this is a smart show, and you're a smart guy. I first encountered you on another smart show. I encountered you on Eric Davis's Expanding Mind, and you were talking about your scholarship under the biologist Lynn Margulis and your fascination with the esoteric in science. So I would love to just listen to you talk about your entrance into all of that weirdness because I find it all so fascinating.
0: Yeah, where where should I start with that? There's a lot of, well, I, <laughs> a lot of places. How did you,
2: yeah, how did you end up <clears throat> under Lynn Margulis?
0: Oh well that yeah. So um so I went to I finished out my undergrad at university of Massachusetts Amherst and Lynn and her son, Dorian Sagan, her son, with Carl Sagan, were sort of kind of known around town, you know? And so when I got into grad school at UMass Amherst for creative writing, you were allowed to take classes in any other department that you wanted, if they would have you. So I went to <laughs> Lynn Markley's and I said, uh, Hey, um, I stopped her in the hallway and I just said, hey, uh, I'm in the creative writing program. She said, what does this have to do with environmental evolution? And I was like, oh, well, uh," (laughs) she's very curt, you know, I was like, well, I want to take your class. Um, She was teaching a class called environmental evolution, which she taught every semester, which is about how the uh, biota, the totality of all living things on the planet interacts with the non-living uh, aspects of the planet, or the abiota, maybe you could call it, and um, and how they interact and regulate one another, and all that. And this continuation of a lot of the work she did with James Lovelock on the Gaia theory, which expresses that the earth regulates much like a living organism, although there's a lot of sort of flack that they got for that because people were like, the earth is not an organism. And they said, Lynn's great answer to that was, the earth is no mere is not merely an organism. Oh, and so, um, <clears throat> so anyway... She was very excited that I was into humanities um, and wanted to take her class because that was a rare thing. And she was also very interested in the humanities. She knew probably hundreds of Emily Dickinson poems by heart. She wrote short stories. She read novels constantly. She had gone to school. Um, she would studied philosophy in school. So, you know, she she was very... She was she was very uh, acutely aware of how important it was to bring the humanities into the sciences and vice versa. And so she, I think she was very excited. And so then flash forward, you know, another semester or whatever, and we just became closer and closer. And she became very much a sort of secondary mother to me, actually. And my, my mother is dead. And so Lynn became really personally important figure in my life and also my main intellectual mentor and I'm not a scientist I probably understand biology more than most people who aren't scientists but I'm not you know I didn't do lab work I studied with her for three years studying scientists and studying natural history and studying um actual uh <laughs> like actual actual thinking about organisms rather than molecular biology, which is in a lot of ways, kind of a phony biology. It's not really about life. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's valuable in some ways and totally discrediting it, but it has its, it has its uses.
2: (laughs) I want to put a pin in that because Rich Doyle has a book on beyond living where he breaks it down and he talks about how molecular biology killed the organism. And I'd love to come back to that, but yeah please well that's that
0: that's good i mean lynn always said we you know we we always thought you know we meaning she and dorian and her colleagues like we always thought that uh, biology should have life in it because of the bio and the words so it's it's important Um, and so uh, basically i studied in her graduate organismic and evolutionary biology program Um, so i was sitting in on graduate seminars i had no serious science background um, and just trying to keep up and she always helped me you know every time uh, I fucked my posture it's sort of kind of like a ballet teacher it's like one step wrong she's like, nope 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 and she just had an endless patience for telling me I was wrong um, and helping me get it right until I had an understanding of what they were talking about and their language and and it was a huge gift I mean it's the best education I've ever had outside of also going to this place called the Nature Institute, which is uh, in New York State, and uh, that's a different story. But I, but really, my main mentor intellectually was Lynn.
2: And so from there, how did you – I feel like if you trace the branches of the tree of disciplines of human knowledge, what we think of as the sciences and the humanities – they join at this trunk, you know, a few hundred or thousand years ago, depending on where you are. And is that the course that you followed into the esoteric roots of science or like, how did you come through and around and about that? No,
0: I mean, I was always interested in the occult and spirituality and religion, in fact, as well. Um, you know, I was raised a-spiritually, um, not anti-spiritually, but there was just not a lot of religion growing up. And somehow I was still always interested in religion and God. And, uh, and you know, I was never violated um, by being made to follow a religion. So I got to investigate on my own. You know, my mom would say, let's go to these churches. What do you like? Did you like this one? You know? And I I always said no, except there was a Presbyterian Sunday school that I was like, you know, pretty young. So I don't know that I would describe it this way, but I definitely had a crush on all the boys that were in that, that Sunday school. So I was like, take me back to that one, you know? Um, (laughs) So, uh, but never, you know, never really landed on anything and so those interests just sort of, that was on, on my own, you know, developing that. I also, you know, encountered the occult at a very young age. Um, not because I was like satanic, ritually abused or anything (laughs) I encountered on my own, um, at a very young age. And so I just, uh, became more and more interested in that as time went on. And then, you know, I'd find out about some of these religions, you know, B- Baha'i, you know, was an early one or they arranged a book that created these bridges between science and religion, which were, I was always told fundamentally opposed. Um, and then, uh, this guy's name, Rudolf Steiner came up a few times and, um, Lynn took me to a conference in grad school So so I knew who Rudolf Schneider was, but I didn't really investigate seriously. And then Lynn took me to this conference um, called Bioneers. She took me a lot of conferences, well, a few conferences like that. And um, there was a newsletter and a brochure from a place called the Nature Institute, which was in New York State. And they were having a three-month-long program um, on Gertian science, the method of science. Practiced by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who's best known for writing Faust and the Sorrows of Young Werther, and just great literature, but not really known as you know really influential uh, scientist. And uh, Lynn said, "Oh, if you can get into that, you must go." And I was like, but Lynn, I, you know, and then like, you just don't argue with the woman. It's just it was really stupid to try to do that. Um, so I didn't argue. I applied. I got in. And so I was studying at the Nature Institute while I was in grad school. So I was in New York State <laughs> driving. had an apartment there. I was driving back to Amherst. To study two majors and teaching courses at the same time. Um, And so it was a lot. And uh, the Nature Institute, which is Goethean science, I had no idea that Goethe was a huge influence on Rudolf Steiner. I found myself living next to a Waldorf School across or across the street from Waldorf School next to a biodynamic farm learning about Rudolf Steiner each day and this person and Goethe who had bridged you know the not only bridged the gaps
1: that's that's too could, uh, um, should, could I that's not generous enough hey Connor can uh, talk to you for a second yeah yeah, was it, yeah was go the ahead institute, um that kind of anthroposophical uh, institute run by the guy he wrote a book called something like Gene Out of Context like a small book
0: he he wrote a book. It's by this guy Craig Holdridge and his wife Henrika Holdridge and a guy named Steve Talbot, started the Nature Institute. Um, and he wrote a book called Genetics and the Manipulation of Life: The Forgotten Factor of Context, which everybody should read. This book it's it's a mind blowing book. It's amazing. It's out of print. It's so good Wait, luck. Is, is
2: this just <laughs> in relation to the like sort of digital reduction of the organism into like just just the genetic sequence
0: no well that's in there but here's the thing with the nature institute and science it's much more profound than that so that's the sort of what i would call the sort of basic like move away from the kind of reductive genetic science that we have that's great i think a lot of people talk about that kind of stuff rupert sheldrake or whatever but these people are all They're all sort of beginners, I think, when they're thinking about science. Um, Craig and Henrika and Rudolf Steiner and Goethe and, you know, these just amazing minds. I mean, I'm not – Rudolf Steiner is a completely different category, but – Craig's up there. He's very intelligent. They're teaching entirely new ways to see, perceive, conceptualize, encounter living beings. Um, it is not just, look, we need to look at you know an organism instead of looking at the genes. Richard Dawkins is reductive, all that kind of stuff. That, that is profound, a profound move away. But um, it's kind of like... Let me make a little analogy. So it's like when people are like, man, mainstream medicine is so fucked up, like just take vitamin C and, you know, like ashwagandha or whatever. It's like, well, that's great, but you're still in the same, you're still in the same exact modality and method. You're just saying, take these pills made out of these substances rather than these pills made out of these substances. Whereas... An entirely different modality of healing would be: I'm going to uh, encounter your etheric body with my etheric body, and we're going to heal each other um, through uh, subtle Christian esoteric energy encounter. <laughs> right, yeah. this is a very different yeah. thing. Like right, so out. this. Yeah, right. Or like radionics. That's another great example, right? So Craig is like the, the Craig and the Nature Institute are like that level of like thinking about science and organisms and all that kind of stuff. It's actually a, a different way of it's a different structure in the in the thought of encountering organisms, which is something very different. So um, so yes, that's all in there and also I don't want it to sound like that because it's much more than that. Yeah.
2: Oh, well, <laughs> by all means, go on. I mean, you know, I, I understand we, we we may have like the unscrubbed ears of the uninitiated here and there there may be like a program of, of ordeals that listeners can subscribe to if they really want to know, you know, what it's really about. But like, uh, what can you like drop to us? Yeah. OK,
0: well, so a lot of it is you have to go through a lot of experiences to understand what what I'm talking about so it's a, or, or you can read Craig's book as a great his, his first book is a great sort of primer so it's hard to encapsulate I mean that's part of the problem with these kinds of sciences they're difficult to encapsulate in just sort of like 10 minute sound bites um, whereas you know the gene is the driving force of evolution it's like that's that's easy you can talk about that in 2 seconds just like you can flush the toilet in 2 seconds um but i think when you okay so here's an here's an analogy okay and this is also an anthroposophical thing anthroposophy being the system of sort of approaching the world the gesture of approaching the world that Rudolf Steiner developed um We think that um, if we sort of change the content of our thoughts um, that will be sort of more spiritually developed, we can sort of change the world once we have better ideas. But what Anthroposophy points out is, no, actually what needs to be changed is the movement of thinking. The thought is just the sort of dead husk of the movement of thought, of thinking. So um, can we get into the actual movement of, of thinking itself, apprehend and understand that. So it's like if you sort of view a, a, a sort of a set of motions that produce a thought as an object, this is just an analogy, then we want to focus on that set of motions, not the not the end product. Um, so when we look at organisms in this sort of Gertian way, what we need to do is. Uh, not break them down into parts, well, this is a leg, this is a foot, this is a nose, this is an ear. We can do that. And it, 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 it's, not, it's not that you throw that away, but you look at the continuity between each part of the organism, how one flows into another, you begin eventually to see that organisms are not spatial beings, and they're not temporal beings either. They're actually movements uh, or, or sort of di- dynamic evolutions through that are expressed to us through time mm. um so organisms individual organism not spatial that's just not true. It's like if you see a butterfly flying around, how can you contain that in a spatial field unless you pin the butterfly, right? So the only way to determine something and an organism's existence spatially is to kill it. Um, so what do you do if you want to see something living? <laughs> you have to do something else, which is why it, there's a great passage in Craig's book, first book, about – extracting DNA from a mouse and all the systems of abstraction that you have to go through to extract, extract something called DNA. And then we pretend that that gives us a full uh, understanding of an organism. But in fact, it gives us much more of an understanding of all the abstract processes that we've had to put it through to examine, you know, it's pretty crazy to think that that's how we do science. Uh, Right now, it's not a science, It's not a science of life, you know, so um I, I feel that I'm not explaining well but I am explaining well it's just a very it's a very complicated so, thing. Com-
1: yeah. So I think I think what has helped me to explain to other people is the just the basic gertian meditations on on the plants and like his his disagreement with Schiller and and when when he realized after 20 years of meditating that all is leaf and and, and he actually perceived the time body unfolding Whereas other people are seeing the sort of like results of the time body in the spatial world. Yes.
0: Yeah. So that's one of the sort of principles of a Goethean method of science is that we observe over time rather than demanding something be. So if you really want to understand an organism, you look at its growth throughout its you know cycle. You know, you don't just uh, – it's, it's life cycle and it's life history. You don't just uh, see – what's in front of you in that moment and extrapolate all the information from it you know there's there's like Grant Morrison thing he says this is like that really interesting thing where he talks about you know when you see a person like wh- wh- when he was like high or something, like whatever he was like high and had some mystic vision or whatever he talked about, you know, we're all larva. That's what he said. Like, because you could see the extension of a person through time from their birth into the future, and you just saw this one continuous, like, billowing tube yeah. moving through
2: time, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, well, the Slaughterhouse Five, you know, uh, the from a Dorian view of human beings, and then also. The, you know, I think that's that's captured in the metaphor of the evolutionary tree itself. And this, yeah. you know, this thought that... I, I don't know if you read Kevin Kelly, you know, any of his, like, techno... No, I know, I know of them, yeah. Yeah, but, but he's, he he's, he talks about all of technology as being an extension of this metabolism that's like entropy is driving all of these little metabolisms that are like branches on that Gaia tree, you know, the, that super uh. or supra hyper organismal thing and that continuous through the the digital realm and that you know like you were saying that everything is a leaf in that sense that it's a it's a tree of of tiny explosions basically tiny energy conversions and so it just it's all flowing out
1: well i mean in, in <laughs> you on,
2: on inarticulate there <laughs> you've been liberated
1: well in, in with, uh, with steiner it's it's not that everything is leaf, but it's it's living things that have an etheric body have this this unfolding time body. But the mineral world is is a is a whole totally distinct domain. Um, I think. Do you remember Connor in Christianity as mystical fact? Doesn't doesn't Steiner say something like? Um, the visible world is the dead corpse of God or something like that?
0: (laughs) That's a good one. There's that Gnostic idea, too, that the sky is the dead body of Sophia and that when you look up, you're actually not seeing... Sky and emptiness. You're seeing a, a dead body. Um, I I don't remember that, but it, it, I mean, it sounds like something he would you <laughs> would write. You know, I mean, I, I I think that the idea being that we often encounter death and we think it's life. There's a there's a book by an anthroposophist who was unfortunately sort of appropriated and maybe even moved into uh, Nazism, <laughs> who nevertheless wrote these really beautiful books, Massimo Scaligero. Um, Maybe he was just an Italian fascist. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, he wrote this book called The Light. Um, is an amazing book. It's not for the faint of heart, but the light we see is uh, the light that has died is basically his idea. Whenever we see light, we're actually seeing the moment of light's death.
2: Uh, I'm so, so glad you went there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> so that's this concept that things—it's uh, you almost view it as like origami or something. It's like there's some sort of spatial entity like an origami crane, but the moment we can perceive it, it's already unfolded before us. So it's no longer the thing that it once was. So it's, it's, um, its body has unfolded. It no longer. And so, and therefore that crane is dead, you know, maybe, maybe there's a sort of remnant of it in the folds, but it's dead. So we think of it that way when we encounter things, um, we're encountering them in process. We're not encountering them, and and if and if we encounter them at all, the, we might be encountering the end process, the end of the process.
2: Yeah, there's a, um, the Long Now Foundation has their their talks. They do like a monthly podcast, I think, and they had neuroscientist David Eagleman out to the Bay Area to give one of these talks, and he talked about how the latency of nerve fibers in people of different heights makes it so that if you like whack a tall guy on the toe with a hammer, it takes him longer to feel it than if if you're short. So he was talking about, you know, if we were to set up a galaxy spanning brain, then it would have these built in latencies that would mean its thoughts were just like vast and slow, like Lovecraftian cold, you know, whatever. Uh. But like, So, you know, this notion of everything being dead by the time it gets to you uh, resonates with, you know, Lynn Margulis being in the Lindisfarne Association with Mitch's graduate advisor, William Irwin Thompson, who I had on the show a while ago. And Bill's got this thing in Coming Into Being about the, you know, consciousness as the latency space where all of the senses meet. But in order for you to experience anything at the same time. Like a sound at the same time as uh, the sight of something means that's the price that we pay, is that we're always looking at the husk of it, or like an extrapolation. And we're looking
0: at different husks too, because if someone who is six, four steps on the toe of someone who's six, four, then they both have the same speed of understanding of the unfolding pain. <laughs> Whereas if someone is five, eight steps on the toe of someone who's six, four, then there's a difference, you know? So even the, even the processes and the hus become different relative to the husker, <laughs> but, but, but they're, di- they're different relative to each, you know, each being,
1: well also then in with the evolution of consciousness in like in language when people don't you know, classical scholars that are that are materialists and, and projecting the, the present sort of like epistemology and trying to understand the Greeks in their language and their world are missing the, the sort of activity of thinking. I and mean, you can see it in the in the language the the, the more verb oriented uh, that than we have but you really have to do meditations to get to the point where your, your, your consciousness, where your cognition is, is somewhat activated, which psychedelics seem to do for people also. I know that you and Steiner aren't so, so into that.
0: <laughs> hey, you haven't checked in on me about that for years, so you don't know anymore.
1: <laughs> I th- well, I just thought Duncan
2: said that. sounds like an invitation, actually.
0: No, no it's fine. I haven't revi- revised my views. I just wanted
2: to give you shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, well.
2: <laughs> in that sense this is actually a really interesting topic in terms of esoteric biology because you know I'm a huge fan of Richard Doyle at Penn State and his book Darwin's Pharmacy you know he really gets into this notion this thesis of the relationship between psychedelics and the evolution of you know human self-cognizance and and syntactic language and so on as the recapitulation of the boundary dissolving experience and the recursion of awareness onto itself that leads to the what he calls the ecodelic insight which is you know that there is no inside or outside and that those boundaries are very you know extraordinarily convoluted to the point of you know being a curious investigation rather than a certainty and so in that sense you know he punctuates this this investigation with stories about his entity encounters in ayahuasca ceremony and, you know, he's such a, a, an elocute and rigorous intellectual, and yet he's, like, so comfortable in this space playing with the sort of, like, fuzzy ontology of these things that are neither within or without him. And I, I, I understand there are, like, certain innate risks to the initiate um, to be, like, dabbling with entities and so forth, but I'm curious if that is specifically your objection to psychedelics as an adjunct to the (laughs)
0: occult disciplines well there's a lot there's a lot to pull apart there i mean first of all let me step back and say do what you want what's right for your spiritual um development is not up to me um so it's not it's not really up to me at all to say people should or should not do psychedelics. What I want is a different cultural conversation about them that allows different kinds of information. in, aside from these are terrible and should be illegal versus these are like bringing me spiritual awakening, bro. You know, like I don't find either of those satisfactory and I'm not saying you guys have those, but I'm just talking about the dominant, um, the, the dominant conversations, the ones that we're allowed to have or that um, are, are portrayed here, here and there. Yeah. Um, so I think, first of all, I don't need them anymore. So I'm not the best person to talk to about them. There are people who are in desperate need of intervention. It's something that Daniel Pinchbeck said a long time ago, which I think is really still very relevant which is that they are medicine for people who need to be shocked it's like taking really really potent antibiotics for an illness you know it's like you don't really want to have to do that <laughs> you know like it'd be great if you could heal on your own but like most people can't so they need something you know i think you can do it other ways i i think um you know like gordon white my, my friend who has the podcast for in soup and wrote this book called the chaos protocols he's like you know has this ritual in his book that you can do um would i necessarily recommend doing that ritual either not really you know i think that i i think that our i think that our desire to speed up our spiritual development is like first of all sort of a spiritual it's like look we have many lifetimes we have many lifetimes many and if you want to rush it this one you might have to contend with the fact that you rushed it the next time around um there's no way um really to speed it up in the long run because you're gonna have to have another life you're gonna have to have a life between those two lives but i think that my objection if we could call it that which is fine we'll call it that is is that it What are they really doing? When when we say that we're encountering spiritual beings or entering spiritual realms or whatever, when we do... Psychedelics. it's like, well, maybe actually other things are happening. Maybe you're popping your astral body out of the complex of all your other bodies and forcing it into a dimension where spirits live. Maybe that's not the best thing to do. Maybe you're creating a tear in your spiritual anatomy that's allowing something in that maybe that tear is not appropriate. You know, I know somebody who did um, – who did i'm trying to remember if he told me not to tell this story or just not to tell it and use his name um okay i think he just did it and told me not to use his name so let's just go with that uh he did dmt so many times that the final time he did it he tripped for an hour and a half which is unheard of with dmt right like just on and on and on and the beans there were like don't ever fucking come back like you are not allowed to come back if you come back we'll kill you right so much like these like fine fun beings they were like no one wants the machine elves to threaten them you know (laughs) So so, so they were just like but look you know we'll give you everything you know like this is all you need at this point this is all you need to know right and so for me it's like To what purpose, to what end, to what limit? You know, these are all questions that I want talked about. And I understand most of them can't be talked about unless people do the psychedelic drugs. But I can have those kinds of experiences or things that are similar to them without doing them anymore. So I'm, again, maybe not the best person to
1: ask. What's the other thing, too. I mean, this this phenomenon of – well, I think I don't know. Steiner talks about something about like co- kobolds looking through peepholes or something. That when some <laughs> a writer drinks, gets drunk and then yes, it's like a, yeah, right. And and this this idea that he talks about the beings of the ninth sphere or something. They're more advanced. And in the latter part of the 20th century, there will be a aramonic school developing where um, people that are unprepared will develop all these sort of powers. Um but they didn't prepare for them and, and so they they could actually be overwhelmed by these these beings that are that are essentially self-interested and not fundamentally um, not fundamentally uh, benefic to human evolution and earth evolution and that seems to be the thing that there's a pers- like a perspectival like essence mm-hmm. to each being in their realm and and when what i've when I hear i'm not i don't go crazy with things i mean i'm I'm my own. I'm not as much of a psychonaut as a lot of the people that I come in contact with, but I have, and in, in you know after I studied in my graduate school with the anthroposophists, I was I was super straight edge. I went to Burning Man several years and didn't really do anything. And then I met people that I trusted that kind of were more shamanically oriented. But one of the things I've noticed with people that do do DMT a lot and they talk about it. They have no idea whether these beings are. All they know is that they're way more powerful than them, and they seem to think they're helping them. And when they tell these stories, I can't help but think sometimes that they just. Don't know. They think they're helping them, but actually, right. it's it, it could be a totally different motivation that they can't really wrap their head around. You know what I mean? Because t- it's too small within the context of these more advanced beings. And I, I think I was in the, was Duncan on the Shame Mouse when uh, in conversation, he was talking about it, and I actually liked what he said. He had a very positive spin on it, but at the same time, it, it is fundamentally ambiguous. I mean, how how can how 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 can it not be? But so I think that I always tell people, look, like take it for take it for what it is, but just take personal responsibility for your own um, balancing your own humanity within within the Earth context of, of Earth of, of Earth evolution to the best that to the best that you can. So it's sort of like when Steiner talks about Lucifer and Araman. I mean, I feel like the lessons I learned from the anthroposophical study are what have kind of given me a framework to be able to process uh, experiences. And so I think the combination can be really healthy because I also feel like it's through certain psychedelic experiences that i've been able to understand what the fuck he was talking about you know <laughs> right, I, right. I, I like I, all of a sudden like something you know you know how it is you, re, you read you read steiner and then it's like i don't know what he's talking about but i'll i know that he's so smart and everything else has eventually made some sense you hold something for seven years and then in meditation or through some personal experience all of a sudden it pops out like a fruit falling from a tree all i've had that happen many times when i wasn't when i wasn't actually you know Totally sober, and I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, I wish some of my anthroposophical friends would would try ketamine, or something. you know, what I mean? you
2: could right, watch the right. no plants grow. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think through,
1: through meditation, because I think these these the the psychedelics are more. It's like a roller coaster compared to meditation. You have more you, you have more focus control, and it's slowed down, and it builds something. Like you said, it's like you're. Um, it's almost like your, your astral body could be like ripped open and you get a vision of something, but it's not, it's not integrated. You really have to do the work to integrate it and it could totally throw you off course and all that stuff. It's actually, I actually totally agree with so many of the warnings now that I've experienced it, but, but that's me. And a lot of people don't, uh, I, I don't know. A lot of people don't really seem to take well, that kind think of responsibility I'm- with it.
0: Yeah, a big part of what you're saying is that there aren't enough people who are qualified to lead people through the experiences. And most people who are doing psychedelics are in this country are doing them without anybody, just leading them through the experience, you know, or like someone in some L.A. apartment, you know what I mean? It's like – it's not – I, I think that there are people that can lead us through, sure. And I think that those people have training, and it's not anthroposophical training, it's some other training. And I also think that anthroposophists uh, really need to get their shit together in their community um, because they've in many ways become fundamentalists um, at worst and at best just sort of a hermetically sealed community that's not really uh, letting anybody else in. And so, therefore preserving their ability to access spirituality with, and, and, and the spiritual without any risk, which is also dangerous. Um, not having any risk is a really dangerous thing. And so I think that, um, I think that there's like, I agree with a lot of what you said. I just think that when we're talking about the general culture's encounter with psychedelics, I just am wary of the way we talk about them. And, you know, I think another thing is, and this a lot of people who do psychedelics don't think that evil exists <laughs> so we don't mostly think that evil exists and you can see it in the episode i did with duncan there's a
2: on my show against everyone with connor b like was an, i wanted to bring up that conversation because well, i'll link to that show in the notes okay it's so good but please yeah uh, oh
0: good thank you i love duncan but um but he's got he doesn't Well, there are a few things that I disagree with him on, and I don't need to call them all out. The only reason I'm calling this one out is because I think a lot of people share this view, which is that evil is some easily manageable, just have a conversation and investigate it kind of thing. You know, it's not. It's it's a real thing that is very problematic. Um, and, you know, like Duncan said something like, oh, well, we, like if you ever met the Antichrist, I would have him on the podcast. And I was like, <laughs> Duncan, if you met the Antichrist, you would be obliterated in his presence <laughs> if he spoke a word to you. You know, like it's just not it's like we're not talking about I'm something you can squint. talk. You just. Yeah, so, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, it's just like we're looking at the eclipse. I mean, this part that is partially. <laughs> You know, it's like we're not talking about something you can have a conversation with. We're talking about something that would actually obliterate your soul so that you would no longer even exist. You would be in a state of utter non-existence and it would take pleasure in doing that to you. This is something completely different. And so I think that people who do psychedelics very often there's already a trusting view that you're going to throw some peyote (laughs) into you and like everything's going to be cool, you know, or maybe you're doing it to solve a problem. So you think it's going to heal you or whatever. And it's like, it's not that the beans that are associated with these medicines are evil, but it's like, if you don't have any gauge on the fact that evil exists or what, goodness might be for you as an individual then um, you're going to have a hard time interpreting the experiences like you said Mitch it's like so you encounter machine elves and they're nice to you it's like yeah well politicians are nice all the time when they want something from somebody I'm not sitting on the machine elves like they they sound cool I've never hung out with them like they sound fun but it's like you know now like now I'm like worried that they're like listening to me and like they're gonna you know like uh, I don't know they're like, gonna mess with your thermostat yeah, exactly. With, like I'm gonna get like a packet of certs and open them up, and like there's gonna be a machine elf in it.
1: Actually, it's on the label if you
0: look Yeah, <laughs> that's what Retson is. It's Zachary, ground up Retson, machine.
1: Saccharin machine elf.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: So um, anyway. So this this position on this intelligence horizon question you know the recognition that we're no longer the top predator in the jungle and you know, maybe we never were this sort of indarkenment i don't know what else to call it like we're in some ways you know, people talk about possibility that we're living in a digital dark age that in spite of this like overflow of information that we actually don't have very good data preservation standards and that actually we're recording very little compared to what we will be or could be, and that people will look back on all of the rapid change and transformation of this time with very little understanding of what actually happened and that it will be like a frustrating blind spot historically. And... So I think about that on the one hand and then I hold that next to science fiction author John C. Wright who his first couple of novels that he wrote were these like aggressively atheist, also like psychedelic transhumanist explorations of like what happens when we become pets of our machines and you know we're wrestling with the fact that we're inhabiting these environments that are sort of built for us by things we can't understand and then he he takes this position with god as like a thought experiment and he says All right, I can accept that if this being is totally transcendental to me, that it decides when it wants to reveal itself to me. You know, that's basic theology, so there's no way I can know it without revelation, without its, like, I don't know, grace or disclosure or whatever. And so... He says, Show yourself to me. And then two days later, he has a heart attack, ends up in the hospital, has like a visitation from the Holy Spirit, and converts to Catholicism in his 40s. Mm-hmm. And like goes on writing science fiction about planet sized computer brains dictating the actuarial tables of human evolution for thousands of years. That we end up moving out into space as like pets of planet god computers. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i
0: if you have a god if you have a god of demands show yourself to me <laughs> you're gonna get a god of demands you know it's like i think it's like you could instead find a most loving god and and uh say you know make me feel good you know <laughs> like you could do that instead and encounter god that way i don't know why people like have that kind of exclamation point you know idea of like how god is supposed to reveal himself you know or itself it's like you you know like you know if you have any idea of god like you know that that thing can do anything right so why not <laughs> <laughs> like why not ask for a car? <laughs> you know, like I think it's like, and that could be a revelation instead.
2: Is of a heart attack? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh no, people don't. People don't like to think that that's how it would show up. You know, but whatever.
2: <laughs> I want to I ask you about, you know, your time horizon as someone who believes in reincarnation, which is strangely something we've never touched on this show, and yeah, just. How do you feel this in your daily life as as something that like puts you know a pressure on your decisions or relieves pressure from your decisions or? Yeah. Um, well, first
0: I experience. reincarnation primarily through uh, the, the sort of proof of it for me, whatever that meant was, was being contacted by people who had recently died and sort of getting the sense that like they're, they're a, a being was transforming. So um, I've never met someone on the other side of that who was reborn again. That was like, look, here I am. You know, <laughs> it's not like that for me. Although I did so. So it's an incomplete experience of it, but it is an experience of it nevertheless. Um, so it's not just something I read about. Um, but I do experience people in my own life that I'm like, oh, here you are again. You know, when I first meet them. Um, and it always seems to have something very uh, – just, just you know, just the weird shit that you're like, no, this can't – this is not a coincidence, you know. So that's one of the first things where it's like the, um, the ability to discern coincidence from karma. I, I, coincidence is much – it's still there. But it's just much less present than it used to be <laughs> for, for me. Um, the world is filled with meaning, which changes your time frame. Um, because it's not just shit happening. You know, it's like happening to you, things happen for you, um, which is different. It's different uh, It's different having a surprise than having uh, someone deliver you a gift that you knew was coming. Um, yeah. I... I also, you know, Rudolf Steiner has this great metaphor of like you're – he's very funny. People don't think of him as funny, but he's actually really funny. He makes a lot of jokes um, that we just don't get because he has a German face or Austrian face. But it's like – so he he says like – it's as if you were standing on a balcony and you drop a flower pot and then you run down the steps – very quickly. And then the flower pot lands on your head, you know, um, <laughs> like you can do it to yourself, you know? So I try to view myself as my own child, um, because I am, I'm the only, uh, I'm, I'm the kid, you know, cause I'm going to have me next time. <laughs> um, and as I've had myself before, as I've been born for myself before, and I'm going to have me after I die in this, the life I have the sort of weird life I have between this life and the next. So I, um, I try to keep that in mind. I try to clear up my karma. I try to do better. Another Rudolf Steiner thing, say be better, say do better. There's a different ego slant between those two things. So I try to do better. Um, and, I pray to do better, you know, I, I I pray and I work and I think about doing better each day, not just each year or each week or whatever, because I know it's coming for me. I know I'm going to be changed and then changed again and then changed again and then changed again into different bodies and non-bodies. So, um,
2: so Yeah. How, what else? How, how does that interact with the Twitter time horizon? Because you're great. You're great on Twitter, you know. And it's like uh, I somebody who is sitting on that like wide open Alex Gray style, like plane of awareness of just everything transforming into itself, you know, just innumerable masks peeling off one another forever <laughs> to reveal the only lover you've ever had. And then like and then meanwhile, like, you know, thrown shade on Twitter. I was like, uh, <laughs> how does that yeah. join in you?
0: Yeah, well, I, I would definitely say I've thrown shade less over time. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody was really nice in the beginning of Twitter, and then everybody got really mean. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm nicer now than I was before. You know, there was – last year I really was like, okay, I'm really going to try to only attack people and institutions in power – and and that's only to sort of empower other people, not even really to attack them because they're not going to give a fuck about what someone says to them on Twitter. But to empower other people to sort of be critical. But then you know I would get in these like sort of just like bitch fests, you know, with you <laughs> like back and forth, and just like well obviously you know nothing of my work, you know, just like this total, right? So so the challenge for me is not a challenge of how to be on Twitter as like some like awesome you know, some awesome, but it's, it's more of like what, what feelings arise in me? Can I pay attention to them? And what do I do when I have those feelings? You know, it's a self observation thing. It's an externalization of, you know, which errant thoughts and, and get out, which thoughts are really my own, all that kind of stuff. You know, this year I think it was, like, a couple of days ago I tweeted, like, you know, if you ever feel like attacking someone directly on here, post nudes instead. And um, <laughs> I've posted a few nudes so far, um, so I'm just trying to be – I mean, not that I wouldn't anyway. That's the good thing about being me is nobody would know. Oh, he's angry. They'd just be like, no, that's just Connor being naked, you know. But I'm I, i am tra- trying to do something different with it this year. Um I'm trying to make it as useful to myself and others as possible. But the challenge all along has been, why are you acting this way on here? You know? And so it's a it's this sort of detachment. I have this sort of detachment from the way that I interact with people on there um, that helps me observe myself.
2: I, I, I think this comparison has been made a lot that social media is like being in traffic. And I think there's, you know, there's something about the way that the, like time dilates – and your dope system is stimulated every time you can let off the brake a little. And, you know, it just our attention is like grabbed and frozen in weird ways. And we feel in the belly of the beast. And it it all sort of boils down to to bring it back around to this thing about evil, because I, I, I love talking about evil. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen evil human beings and. That's definitely different from like, you know, elder god type stuff, you know, as far as like boss level shit is concerned, you know, do I have to avert my eyes or what? But I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes you can actually envelop the opponent endosymbiotically, wow. <laughs> you know, like the, the the day that I was sort of non coincidentally released early from my state supervision in Texas a couple years ago over a nonviolent offense. I had a, uh, I was reading Adi Da, talking about like a world governance, you know, like a world federation of everyone who, you just knowing that our identity is rooted in our never abstracted, never removed, always embeddedness with each other. And I was like, "Mm, you know, just sitting in court waiting for my number to come. And it was like somehow you reach behind things and accidentally bumped the tumbler that opened the lock. (laughs) And that if you if if you were to try and like host a podcast where you interview demons, that that's like not it's not going to work. And you're right. It's not going to work because even because there's something sort of like abrasive or aggressive about Love directed in certain ways, in which the other is sort of still recognized as a spiritual opponent. I don't know.
0: Hey, whose podcast is this? You know, like that would definitely be a line on one of the episodes sooner or later. Like, where the person just realized that they were in fact not the host. <laughs> um, I mean, I think. I think. Yeah. I mean, I I get what you're saying too. Is like. The shape of something, it, I mean, it, it's that, you know, photon fucking particle wave thing. It's like if you look at a demon with love, you get a different interview than if you look at a demon with fear, you know. And so, you know, what exactly would you get? Um, and in fact, they want, a lot of them want to be looked at with love and be redeemed and neutralized, you know. Um and they they seek that out in people very often, which is why they can be very insistent sometimes. But even, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody, I'm not saying you're saying this, but I don't think anybody on Twitter is evil for the most part. You know, it's not, you can't really do, you know, maybe Twitter itself is evil. I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, but uh, probably not, probably not. It's probably, um, it's probably a framework um, it's it's probably something that's taken taken us away from the kind of socializing we thought we would do and and change it into something else. But
1: yeah, yeah Well, uh, social media, right? So I I don't know if I'm going to be able to interact in this conversation without quoting Steiner. I don't know maybe it's because because <laughs> it's with you, but I think I yeah. remember him saying, um, the evil is that which is out of place that in one in one epoch." Uh, something that's healthy can be evil when it's uh, disproportionately manifest in another so when you I mean you're talking about the phenomenon of what are you talking about social media when people are bitching on YouTube and it's so easy to because you have a because you have you're in a car or you're on a computer there's not the person in front of you for you to sort of be be sensitive to all the ordinary cues that you're enculturated to um, to have when you're interacting with another human being aren't there and so there's a lopsided sort of agency and so in a way it is the the twitter or the computer or the the media itself that it's not that it's evil in itself but the way that it disfigures the proportionate interaction of beings that are enculturated to have certain sensory cues that the 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 epiphenomena of that is it creates an effect of evil unless you were to compensate for it and by becoming conscious of it and then adapting to it like what you were talking about the little things that you have like okay i'm going to put a nude pick instead of you know when i have this that seems to me would be like a step in the process of of adapting to the mediated context which is something we're all going to have to do a, a heck of a lot more of it's like an immune right.
2: system against the machine
0: yeah yeah something like that I mean and interesting a lot of people would think that the nude pics were evil but they sort of Crazed comment was not, you know. It's but time. time, yeah, right. <laughs> You're right. But there, is, uh, yes, I remember that Steiner passage too. He actually says that wolves are evil and bats are evil in that <laughs> context, and you get a sense of that. It's like it's like why do we think that wolves are evil? You know, it's like there's a holdover from this old attitude that's sort of like still is ex- ex- exhibiting its excess and we're we're starting to move away from that you know they don't they don't represent that to us um in the same way and probably because they're not you know stealing kids from cradles or whatever you know because we don't live in wolf territory in the same way but i mean i think and i think he also would say that there is an eternal evil that is not necessarily time bound as well. Um, That evil sort of moves around. It's just around. And and also William Rowan Thompson and and David Spengler talk about this um, in a positive way, like, you know, anything that sort of moves culture forward is going to look evil at first. Right. Um, And that, that's why you know i I'm not tuning my own horn here, but that's why people think that I'm evil or porn is evil um sexuality is evil because it's pushing sexuality forward because it's demanding people look, think, encounter it um I think the social media stuff is like you know the social realm is a gathering place it's a place where we're held it's something that's sort of um can blur our identities. Um, it can bring us together like by holding us, you know? And so, um, all these different, when we enter into that gathering place, all these different movements and gestures become available to us, we can infused by it. If you think of going to a mass protest, all the kinds of interactions that can happen there, there's so many different sorts, right? And then we can carry them back into our lives. But when the social becomes sort of bound up in a social media, a different medium or a mediator, um, that's mediating the kinds of social that we have and the kinds that we can direct toward each other in a certain kind of way and it's warmthless you know and it wants us to sort of robotize ourselves so we can power it so we can become its power cells um so it's really about recognizing and embracing the energy that we know we're entering into when we're on twitter or facebook or whatever it's not about discarding the mediator it's about seeing what the mediator is and engaging with it the right way
2: it's interesting it's just occurred to me that you're talking about like the the sort of nexus of the folk image of evil uh, moving from the wolf and the bat of Dracula to the like the matrix which is a technological vampire that's like actually yes. like uh-huh. literally draining people's life force and it's this uh yeah that's I don't know that's just it just hit me that that the matrix is basically like internet dracula yeah exactly (laughs) Dude, this is so cool having you on the show i feel like you know we really only scratched the surface of what we could have been talking about you know here and i really appreciate your time and i don't want to take too much of it up before you go but i do want to give you a chance to stump what you're what you're working on right now and to if you want to leave a message in the archives for the unborn digital archaeologists that are gonna pick <laughs> this up one day. Um
0: yeah what the fuck are you guys doing listening to podcasts? Um I <laughs>
2: <laughs> They just put them on no. while they're you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're like jewelry like they're since they're not physical beings in the same way, podcasts are like jewelry. Um yeah so I'm I have a dual formats a podcast and also a web series called Against Everyone with Connor and Beeb. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor and Beeb, that's where you can support it, which is a really good idea because I like interaction and money and the feeling of validation and the, all that kind of stuff. But also I spend a lot of time doing this thing and it's for free for everybody. So if you can contribute, that is fucking awesome. Um, the show is a show about ideas, you know, I started it because Every, almost every podcast I was on or media thing, like we would start getting to like the cool shit. And then as soon as we got like sort of deep, people would be like, okay, and then on to this next thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's like, let's do this, you know? And I just wanted, you know, and also I was like irritated that everything, you know, was like, so many people's podcasts are like you have this thing this book came out this object came out let's talk about the album that you have out now let's talk about you know it's like it's so topical where i just thought like interesting people have interesting conversations and i wanted more of that and so um i wanted to have conversations with people that you know that i thought i could have good conversations with so there's that aspect of it um, and then also I give a, a, every few episodes is also a a little mini lecture by me instead of me talking with someone. So I've talked about the nature of time and space, identity politics, the
2: abolition of work, all that kind of stuff. And um, Yeah, dude, we didn't even get into your whole like uh, your, your issues on the state. That piece, your early episode about like uh, statism was I was like, oh, shit, we got to talk about anarchism. But I <laughs> well, just do what thou wilt. Um,
0: so uh <laughs> so so that's my show and that's like the sort of main output right now, though I have you know some articles that have been coming out and I still use my Twitter. I have a a book that is um Let's it, 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 let's say it's coming out next year, um, <laughs> and I won't I won't say anything else about it because I will be announcing something about it soon. So yeah, that's that's what I'm up to basically.
2: Rad dude, and and Mitch, I guess I want to give you an opportunity to stump your yourself and leave a message in the time capsule too, if you want to. Yeah.
1: Stump myself, <laughs> stump me in the like a political so campaign,
2: good. like you stand on a stump. And you, you speak, <clears throat> you say, hey, yeah.
1: that's a good idea. Senator! <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I need to say on a stump other than that. Uh, I, I guess like one of the reasons you said being on here now, this sort of uh, prequel, um, I think it's worth mentioning that. Um, I mean, I met Connor years ago uh, when I was editing Edge Realms of Consciousness for the Evolver <laughs> <laughs> books. and And we both connected, because we were these sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it, but uh, left-hand path version of uh, anthroposophists and uh, seemingly left-hand and and uh, Lindisfarne uh, people, right? Because Connor is also a gay porn star, and I was a professional gambler, and that was sort of like out of the ordinary for all the other <laughs> the other people that I was meeting in, in, that, uh, in that context. And I... I remember when I stayed with you in San Francisco years ago, you kept mentioning this name, Duncan Trussell, um, and saying that you wanted to get in contact with him and get on his podcast. And I didn't hear his name for many years until, uh, I was on the road with Michael here. Uh, we drove to Eclipse and Burning Man and Michael had started this podcast and he was sort of, as we exchange because we're collaborating musically, but um, on a on a different level we 're apparently collaborating cosmically because he basically gave me a um like a one oh one course on podcasting by playing different people 's podcasts talking about where he was at. And I have no intention of uh, uh being on or having my own podcast at that time, but I met Duncan at burning man and then again at the uh uh, after party for uh, Horizons. He was hosting, he was doing a live podcast recording in, in Brooklyn um, for the Horizons Psychedelic Conference um, after party that Symposia was holding. And, and we, immediately, uh, we immediately connected and, and, and he invited me to a synthesizer uh, expo. The week later, <laughs> I happen to be into synthesizers, and he didn't know that, but um, or he did know that, but we never explicitly discussed it. So we go there, and then he says, "Oh, you know Connor? Oh, I'm going to send him a picture right now." And I'm like, "Yeah, of course, yeah, I totally know him. I haven't talked to him in years." Um, and and then I was thinking about <laughs> how, how did I meet this guy Duncan? How did he? There's physically meeting him, and then he's com- him coming into my consciousness through through Michael, and then. Uh, even further back through, through you, but in this totally kind of seeming mm. random way up until the point where I become close friends with him. And I'm thinking about the things that Steiner said, we talk about, about incarnations and destiny and how you, you're in, uh, elementary school, uh, class, you're, you're in homeroom with the people that you're supposed to be in homeroom with this kind of, this kind of uh-huh. thing. And, cool. and... And then three days later, Duncan's like, you got to start a podcast, man. So <laughs> right now I'm in the process of of, of developing uh, my website and, uh, you know, different a number of different things and practicing for that. But the Shamanic Agenda podcast will be eventually <laughs> coming out. I think Duncan's going to be my first guest since this is all his fault. Uh, so um, I'd love for you to be, be on as well. I want to talk about these kind of things. Um, so that's that's where I'm at right now. It's my stump talk.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the first uh, advertisement for something that doesn't exist yet we've had on the show. So, hey, right on. Dude, guys, guys thank you both so much. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man.
0: Thanks. I was hearing when you said that, I'm sorry. I was just hearing some atheist listener being
2: like, besides God. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for listening to future fossils podcast a member of the mind pod network along with such excellent shows as the synchronicity podcast third eye drops it's all happening with zach leary and many many more go to mindpodnetwork.com to check those out and if you'd like to support the show give us a rating on itunes or stop over at patreon.com slash michael garfield thank you and have a most excellent eon.